Ahoy hoy all you amateur arbitrageurs, I'm John Miller and this is Everybody Trades. And you know what? All this talk of fire in the Amazon rainforest, well obviously that got me thinking about rainforest, Schmain Forest, that South Park episode from 20 years ago which was just referenced in our opening song here today. Now to be quite frank, just to the extent of how bad these fires are from a historical perspective is unclear to me at, at this point in time. And it's certainly possible that the worst is yet to come from these fires. So I don't want to minimize the problem of fire in the Amazon rainforest. No, that isn't my purpose whatsoever. But here's what I'm worried about as this, as this story rages like the fires do on the headlines of our various newspapers. What worries me is that people are going to come to the wrong conclusion about who and what the culprit is for the fires in the Amazon rainforest. Now, when you watch the news, when you see the spectacular plumes of smoke going through Sao Paulo, for instance, all these huge fires, when you see this stuff on television, even if it's not explicitly said, what you're implicitly supposed to believe, what you're supposed to conclude from all of these reports, it's quite obvious to me that the news, as it were, the mainstream corporate news media, wants you to believe that basically capitalism is to blame here. People wanting to make a profit, people wanting to build lumber, for instance, build a house, whatever it might be, whatever, to, to, clear, to clear forestation for cattle, for, for raising cattle, for instance. Various different reasons why people do that. Well, again, you're supposed to blame free trade, aren't you? You're supposed to blame capitalism and people's desire for wealth. That's supposed to be the big culprit here, right? So my, I, as a libertarian, I've really got something to explain here, don't I? Well, it turns out perhaps not, because since the 1850s, there's something in Brazil that is an English translation that we'll call the land law, which dictated at that time that every piece of unoccupied land in Brazil was declared public property. And guess what was basically almost Everything in the Amazon is uninhabited, especially in the 1850s. So by default, the Amazon rainforest is a public land. It is managed by the Brazilian government for all intents and purposes. So with that in mind, why is it that nobody seems to be blaming, largely anyway, again, in the mainstream corporate media, there's very little blame and none that I've seen being thrown in the direction of of Brazil's government, its EPA, its, its version of the EPA, whatever that might be. Somehow they're getting no blame whatsoever. Well, I can tell you why that is. Because again, in the mainstream corporate media, there's this idea that, no, the government should manage everything. In fact, world government, the UN, should essentially manage all of our environmental affairs. So if we admit that Brazil has done a horrific job of managing its most important piece of natural anything. If we're going to admit that Brazil can't manage the Amazon rainforest, then it sort of logically follows that maybe the UN is going to struggle managing the environmental affairs of the entire world. Frankly, what Brazil needs, 
what the Amazon rainforest needs is property rights, private property. We need individuals owning the Amazon rainforest. That's just as simple as it is. And what we also need on top of that is a price mechanism, period. Essentially, what we need is free trade. We need capitalism, right? Now, why would that be? What does a price mechanism possibly have to do with anything in this case? You might be asking me. You might be going, how does this have anything to do with, what does money have to do with the environment, for instance? Well, I happened upon a piece from actually a Spanish man. His name is Jesus Huerta de Soto. Well, I happened to find an English translation of something that he wrote, and frankly, it spoke to me rather well, and I think it will speak to you as far as the importance of the price mechanism. And here's what Mr. Huerta de Soto wrote. How can we know, for example, what type and composition of babies' diapers are the most suitable from an environmentalist viewpoint? Given that the collection and treatment of garbage is a government responsibility financed through taxes, there is no way in which consumers can internalize the costs of processing the different types of rubbish, meaning that diaper manufacturers do not have any incentive to consider the environmental aspects of their product. The same thing occurs in all fields where the state intervenes, although in most cases we do not realize it. So in other words, the price system is critical for one thing because it provides people with invaluable information that they otherwise cannot get. Again, you take Mr. Huerta de Soto's example there. Why does, say, Huggies, the giant diaper corporation, or whoever makes, whoever owns Huggies, Procter & Gamble, whoever it might be, notice that they really have no incentive and frankly, no, not only do they have no incentive to make environmentally sustainable, as the popular phrase goes, and envir- make as low of a footprint as far as it goes with diapers. They have no incentive to lower their footprint to make environmentally friendly diapers. And not only that, they have no information, really, to know which types of diapers are better. It's all a guessing game at this point because, again... The government makes no effort to divide these sorts of things out. There's no effort made to say, well, here's why. You see, these types of diapers are much more difficult to get rid of and recycle. And in a free market, that would be reflected in the price mechanism. It would be really expensive for a company like Huggies, Pampers, whoever it might be. If it costs a lot of money to environmentally get rid of these things, to to get rid of your old diapers, if that's going to cost the city a lot, the manufacturing plant, whoever it is, if somebody's actually got a real price mechanism there, there's real incentive to lower prices, to keep prices down, to get profits. Well, guess what Huggies is then going to do? If it costs them a ton of money to get rid of all these things, to pe- for people to get rid of their product, they're then incentivized to create a product that is much more easily broken down in our various in our landfills and whatever methods we use to get rid of our trash, to get rid of our rubbish. Is this now becoming clear why the price mechanism works? Again, if it's expensive to break down diapers for whatever reason, whatever the material is, if that material is, is really expensive... And then there's another material that is that is cheaper. Well, 
Huggies doesn't really care on that end. They just care how much it costs to manufacture. They cost. They care about their bottom line, period. They're a giant corporation, right? They care about their bottom line. Big surprise. So my point is, use that. Use it. Use their own incentives in a positive way. And, the, and frankly, you don't even have to use it per se. You just let freedom happen. That's what you do. Because again, if there was a private company like an advanced disposal, like a waste management, whoever it might be, if there's a private company that is in charge of that, they're going to be much more likely, and by much more I mean a thousand million bajillion times more likely to actually care about their bottom line than your city cha- cr- cr- than your city trash collectors. That's just the bottom line. Now going back to the rainforest, again, think about the property. Think about what private property versus public property and the incentives therein. Now, if you owned a piece of the Amazon rainforest, yeah, you might have some incentive to cut down some of those trees and sell them for lumber, or perhaps to knock down some trees and raise some cattle. There very might well be economic incentive to do that, that there, and there will be at times, certainly. They're going to be, it's not hard to imagine a world in which you own a piece of the Amazon rainforest and somebody offers you a contract to cut down some of those trees and to make lumber out of it. That's not difficult to imagine. But it's also not difficult to imagine that if the government owns this property, if it's their public property, and again, there is no profit mechanism, they have no incentive to profit off of their own land, they just simply own it. Well, when they they lease the land out, yeah, they'll make some money off of the company that leases that land, that that bulldozes all those trees, does whatever they have to do, but that the incentive does not remain for them to regrow the trees, for them to use that land again. No, they just knock down the trees and they move on to the next place because why should they regrow them? It's not theirs. Now, I suppose you can pass laws and do this or do that, I'm just telling you, having people actually own their own property is going to be a much simpler solution there. Okay, that's enough about the rainforest for now, because quite honestly, I wasn't planning on going on about the rainforest for as long as I did this there. But quite honestly, after I started watching Rainforest, Main Forest, something else hit me. It wasn't just about about the rainforest. A, A surprising quote came up, something I've thought about a lot lately. And I just thought Eric Cartman, being his usual outlandishly mean self, kind of put this all in perspective. And, well, I guess I'll just start ram. I'll stop rambling for a second, and I'll just play you the clip here. You're going to hear, actually, uh, the voice of Jennifer Aniston, believe it or not. There's not a lot of guests, celebrity guests' voices in South Park history, but obviously this is a very prominent one early in the run here. Jennifer Aniston is playing... A teacher, a choir teacher, who's basically a parody of up with people. She's the leader of this group, and the boys are going down to the rainforest to learn all about it, sing songs, and all that stuff. Well, Cartman, when they're driving the school bus, he sees a bunch of poor people in the Capitol. And, well, here's how that went down. Children, I think we're entering San Jose, which is the capital of Costa Rica. Oh, this is so exciting. 
Oh my god, dude, look how dirty and crappy everything is. Eric, Costa Rica is a third world country. These people are much poorer than those in the U.S. Well, why the hell don't they get jobs? Hey, why don't you people quit slacking off and get a job? What's wrong with you? Go to college. Eric, sit down. Look, you gotta be friends with these people or they just slack off and be poor forever, right, Kenny? So obviously, classic Eric Cartman there, but... I just thought that was funny because even though that's obviously hyperbolic, humorous, and over the top with him saying, hey, you poor people, get to work. Well, there is a lot of that mentality when there's discussions of the homeless in America, for instance. There are some people that will rather simply, and again, these are people who are nominally on my side in a lot of ways. They're for free economics. They're for free trade, all that good stuff. But for whatever reason, they aren't able to look beyond just the simple, what I would call the football mentality of life, the pull yourself up by your bootstraps argument, as it were. I guess what I'm trying to say is, while rugged individualism is a fine thing, if you're a rugged individualist, good for you. That's awesome. Hey, you want to live out in the country, grow your own food, build your own house, well your own water, Whatever it might be, if that's your game, you never want to go to a grocery store in your life and you just are, you're Ted Nugent and you're out there killing wild game every day, God love you. I have absolutely no problem with that whatsoever because, well, again, as long as you're doing everything you've agreed with other people to do and you're not aggressing upon anybody else, well, you're golden in my book. And what I really just described there is individualism. It's all about individual liberty and individual choice. But the problem, at least from a branding perspective, in my humble opinion, I'm starting to realize this anyway, is that that root word, individual, and individualism, I think turns some people off and scares some people, quite honestly. Because most of us, well, frankly, we don't want to go it alone. We don't want to just be a loner. We don't want to be a person that, again, is a rugged individual that lives out in the middle of nowhere and subsists on whatever is on the land, for instance. Most of us in 2019, especially in America, don't want to do that. And frankly, people in general are social beings. We don't want to just be alone. We don't want to just be individuals, as it were. So let's make very clear something about what individual liberty is and what it isn't. In a liberal society, and by liberal, I mean liberty. I mean a free society, an individually free society. And again, the individualism is about individual choice. It's not about you can't form a team. You can't form a club, a union. And in fact, the family is really the ultimate unit in an individual liberty society. It's what it allows, in my humble opinion, the nuclear family, the traditional family, not that it's always going to be perfect or traditional. Yeah, there's going to be mixed families and all that stuff. The point is we need adults taking care of the young, especially taking care of their own kids. The more of that we have, the better off we're going to be. Now, that's, that's an argument for getting coercion out of our lives. That's an argument for getting the state out of our lives. It's not an argument for, hey, nobody should live in cities, for instance. We shouldn't have neighborhood associations, for instance. 
I have no problem with neighborhood associations as long as all the neighbors freely agree to said agreement. See, that's not a problem. See, if you're for individual liberty, you're not saying that assistance or helping people should be outlawed. Again, it's about coercion. It's about pointing a gun at somebody else and reaching into their pocket instead of your own pocket. It's reaching into somebody else's pocket and giving something to somebody else. That's the thing that I don't like. That's the thing that I, frankly, am morally opposed to. But it has not, But notice that has nothing to do with, again, mutual agreement. If you want to get into an agreement or a union or anything with a bunch of other people who agree with you in a nonviolent way, you're golden. That's what it's like. That is what individual liberty is really all about. And sometimes I think when we're trying to motivate people on an individual level, sometimes we keep saying, well, you just got to hard, it just takes hard work. You need hard work. Got to have hard work. Well, the, again, uh, from a branding perspective, I'm not saying these people are wrong. They're, of course, right. I just think maybe from a branding perspective, instead of saying hard work, Maybe we should say reps as in repetitions, right? Like take, when quarterbacks, they take reps in practice. Like nobody says, nobody says in, pra- in, in, in practice you're doing hard work. No, you're taking reps. Well, frankly, what I've gotten the last few years, I think I've done about 75 of these everybody trade shows now. I'd like to think I've, I'm better now than when I was in episode one. And that's all about reps. And frankly, these reps have been really fun for me. I enjoy this, this show. Now, there's other things that are hard work, like digging a ditch, for instance, moving furniture. That stuff is hard work. Doing a podcast, that's not hard work. That's kind of fun. It's certainly, it's all about reps. That's what you need. You just need repetition and to get good at something. You don't have to, the whole pulling yourself by your bootstraps, the football mentality, Frankly, that's all great for a lot of people. It actually really worked for me. Like I had, I am kind of a loner, to be honest with you all. The, the reason I, I, my main job is trading stocks, I didn't want to have to have a boss. Heck, I'm a little bit lazy too in that sense. I didn't want to have to work that hard to make a living. I certainly didn't want to have to put on a tie and go to a nine to five every day. And, and if you're doing that, nothing wrong with that, of course. But I'm just saying, I'm just describing my personality. If you're, again, if you're the type of person who likes to work with a lot of other people, who likes to work in an office or whatever it might be, that's all well and good. And again, that's why I want to make the distinction. I would just want to be as clear as possible here. There's a distinction between individualism and rugged individualism. So I just again, I think the rugged individual thing is overrated, and frankly, it doesn't even really exist either. When you really think about it, if you're going to actually, especially in 2019, you're going to attempt to what build a cabin in the woods or something like that. Even if you literally use the labor, you're the only person in the woods building the actual house. You still can't say that you did that all by yourself. Not even close. Unless you actually chopped down wood in the forest made it into lumber which would take months years an extremely long period of time now i'm guessing you'd probably would go to the lumber yard even if you were going to construct your own shack like ted kaczynski in the forest i'm guessing even he got some lumber or somebody did at some point 
because nobody makes their own lumber because it takes forever. It would take absolutely forever to make your own lumber. It'd be almost impossible, frankly. But because of trade, because of efficiency, because of good old capitalism, you can go to the lumber yard and get all the lumber you want basically at any time of the day. Pretty incredible, right? And the point is, is the amount of steps that it took just to make that lumber, the amount of people that it took, it had to take dozens, if not hundreds of people. Because the man who physically cut down the tree was not the same man who put it in the truck. And that same man was not the man who drove the truck. And guess what? The guy who drove the truck, the guy who worked the saw, well, they didn't build the saw. And the people who built the saw, they didn't make the metal that, that the blade was made out of, etc., 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 etc. It becomes quite clear that even if you were to build your own house, if you have a saw, if you have lumber, even if you're going to do all the work by yourself, you've had dozens of hundreds, if not thousands of other people who have helped you along in that process. You just can't see them because they're not right in front of your face. All you're seeing is the final price that you're paying at the cash register. That's all you see. But that doesn't mean those people didn't exist. See, even you, the rugged individual, you've had a ton of help getting your little Ted Kaczynski shack built. Just an absolute ton of help. Hundreds, if not thousands of people you've never met helped you build that house. So, all right. That was kind of a, well, kind of took two topics and mashed them together there, but I thought it worked. What the hell? So with that said, let's get out of here on this Tuesday afternoon. This feels like the last day of summer, doesn't it? So let's enjoy it. Until next time, I'm John Miller, and this has been Everybody Trades. Sunday what a wonderful message! Boys and girls. There'll be no more.